And welcome back to Butter With That, a movie podcast where a bunch of friends get together and talk about movies. We are deep in our love month theme, talked about all things uh, related to love and who we love and characters and their relationships to various other characters. That is love theme. But before we continue with this week's pick, I want to... Check in with everybody, see how everyone's doing. We're here with Dave, Sam, and Connor. What's up, guys? How is life? What have you seen? Report back. I think off the bat, we should acknowledge that we are on the precipice of a huge milestone for Butter with That. (laughs) Thank Uh, you, Connor. That was really important information that I uh, was not going to lead with uh, because I, uh, I forgot. So please, Connor, tell us about it. Well, it's episode 199. Uh, over the course of four years, I can't believe we've done almost two, four and a half years, uh, almost 200 episodes, which is kind of wild. So we have something special planned for episode 200, something a little different, a surprise here, maybe another surprise there. Um, so we're really excited for episode 200. So I just want to thank everybody for joining us, whether you've listened to just a few episodes or many, many episodes. It's been an incredible 200 episodes and so many movies just kind of wild to think about yeah guys 200 episodes that's so much content that's so much um there's so many movies so many conversations so many good laughs wow wild that that's pretty wild um thank you for that update connor 199 we're right on the precipice of huge anniversary uh or milestone i should say and uh, so that's a huge, that's huge news. What, what else is on uh, your guys' radar? I think huge news also for me is that if we're at 199, that must mean that there's over 200 hours <laughs> of us speaking available online. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. Like I get what that like 200 episodes means, but like <laughs> understanding is just, very strange to me. Um, but other than me learning how time works, I, along with many other people, have been watching The Last of Us. I'm obsessed. I have been like, I don't like zombie things anymore. Change my mind. This is different. Really love it. Bless. Also, so, yeah, an interesting slant on zombies. Not not quite zombies, but uh, yeah, the show rocks so far. As, as a big fan of the game when that came out in 2013 it's so awesome to see like all of these folks who i know who don't really play video games a whole lot um really loving the show and the characters and the journey uh so it's just so great to see hbo just do a really a fully realized adaptation of the last of us um i've also been watching it it's fucking awesome and they do some really i would love i know it's a tv show but if anyone's ever if we're interested in doing one little spin-off season recap episode or discussion uh there's a whole lot to unpack it's a very yeah i'm, I'm just loving it butter with us last Ooh. of butter <laughs> last of butter sounds uh a little fatalistic but um butter us 
<laughs> this is getting worse yes. as it goes. It's a real, uh, yeah, <laughs> descent into uh, madness. Yeah, I mean, I I would talk about it. I guess I I could start watching it. I'm assuming, Sam, this means that you haven't watched any of the bear, which you promised <laughs> that you'd watch. Oh, oh my God, Christina, I'm so. It's okay. It's fine. There's a, there's time. To be fair, um, there's no to be fair, honest to God. I have been packing and, and you know, getting rid of a lot of things in my life. So I've been a little distracted. Um, I forgot. I'm sorry. That's fine. That is the, yeah. It'll be just something, a little tidbit for the future. Yeah. What else, uh, what else have folks been watching? I've been watch trying to watch 2022 movies did not watch a whole lot i did watch the menu which i enjoyed uh but the main thing i want to talk about did not come out this year but is uh the show what we do in the shadows in <gasps> season one um so fucking funny uh the humor just right up my alley i haven't seen the movie so that's something i have to knock off um my list have to check out soon but some friends and i you know we just decided to oh we've heard this is funny throw it on I've probably seen the first half of the season like three times now. So thoroughly enjoying what we do in the shadows and it got renewed for seasons five and six over the winter. Um, So I'm really excited to dive into seasons two, three, and four over the next uh, couple of weeks. But Christine, I know you're a big fan of the show, right? I don't think I registered the fact that you hadn't watched it. For some reason, I feel like you would have been all over this show, but I'm so glad you're coming uh, to it, even if it's late. That's such a gem of a show. You're going to just have such a good ride. Yeah, great show. I had a, I had a real doozy of a week, uh, re-movies last week. <clears throat> I had the opportunity to see 4K restoration of the 1985 Soviet film Come and See, which is one of the most devastating films I can think of. So that was a real doozy. I've never seen a theater empty out when the lights came up in like a louder silence. It's pretty intense. Uh, also saw the new uh, Brandon Cronenberg film, uh, Infinity Pool, which is uh, pretty wild, uh, very good, and extremely brutal. So that was uh, pretty intense. But the one that really stuck with me was a 2018 uh, Chinese film by the title An Elephant Sitting Still. Uh, that a uh, film by uh, the, the, the debut feature film and only feature film, sadly, by Hu Bo, who's Story casts a long shadow over the movie. He died by suicide during the post-production of the film for some pretty complicated reasons. The film is just under four hours and features only 90 shots. So it is extremely methodical. Uh, It takes place over the span of one day. And uh, most shots are very, very long. The longest being about 18 and a half minutes. And I feel like this one is a really great example a really hearty rebuke to the uh, popular thing that i hear people say that if you can't make a good movie in under three hours you failed because of the the length of the movie because of the duration of shots because it all takes place over the course of one day with only four characters and it does a lot of interesting things with depth of field uh, allowing us only to really focus on our central characters while the backgrounds are sort of blurred into a homogeny uh makes it it doesn't feel like you're watching a movie for four hours. There becomes a certain point where it becomes experiential in a way that I've seen few films pull off and has really haunted me and really stuck with me. It's a towering demand and very, very sad. But for fans of challenging cinema, I think 
you should make sure this is at the top of your list because though it is a demanding runtime, um, it absolutely earns its length and becomes, yeah, less a film and more an experience. And uh, really one of the best films I've seen in a very, very long time. So I would recommend it. That sounds really good. I'll definitely. How did you watch it? I rented it on Amazon, but mm-hmm. uh, there is the entirety of the movie is free on YouTube, but it is at a pretty bad quality and like the frame rate is fucked up. So I, I would say to avoid that, like even for free, it's, it's worth paying for, for the correct experience. Yeah, that sounds harrowing, but good. I, my most recent watch, I've been trying to get some 2022 movies in, uh, watched uh, Decision to Leave, uh, Korean movie by the director. I, I believe he did like Old Boy, uh, Handmaiden, um, Park Chan-wook. And uh, I, I liked it. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's like beautiful, some like amazing shots. I think I wanted to love it more than I ultimately did, but I would highly recommend. Um, it's got like a detective procedural, which is always a favorite genre of mine. And then it has like love, melodrama, and some really nice little twists throughout. So uh, definitely would re- recommend Decision to Leave. Yeah. Oh, wait, Dave, you watched Bloodshack, didn't you? Oh, yeah, I did watch Bloodshack. <laughs> so that was something we were talking about in our text chain, a movie that um, Christine discovered, 1971 um, horror film. This was a recommenda- recommendation for my housemate. Uh, I had never seen it, and then I watched it. Now I've seen it twice. Oh, really? Yes. I don't think I'm watching it again. But <laughs> Some interestingly um, beautiful shots, though, in there. Yeah, as you described, uh, for what is uh, otherwise a uh, very poorly made film. Oh, it's a horrid, but there there are some absolutely beautiful shots of, like, I don't know, wherever it's shot, like Montana or Wyoming. And then there's just a Utah, rodeo, yeah. like a slice of life rodeo just dropped right in the middle. And, um, yeah, to extend the runtime. Mm, mm, what a gem. All right, so... This week, uh, we are, as I mentioned, we're still in our love theme, our love month. And uh, I have brought P.T. Anderson's Phantom Thread, a film that came out in 2017. I've realized this is now our fourth P.T. Anderson movie. (laughs) This is going great. I love it. (laughs) Yeah. Part of me was like, oh. We've we've done we've done Anderson like this what, is my fault really. <laughs> what more is there to say? But when I was thinking about love and love stories, I was like, this I feel like movie would be a really interesting one to talk about because they it goes deep into a relationship whether we think think it's a toxic relationship or not uh, will be in, an interesting debate. Uh, but for those who have not seen it. As I had mentioned, Phantom Thread is a 2017 film directed by P.T. Anderson, starring Daniel Day-Lewis, Vicky Crapes, and Leslie Manville. Just a quick synopsis. It's basically just about a 1950s dressmaker named Reynolds Woodcock, uh, who is very precise, controlling, and manipulative, or like meticulous, I should say, in every uh, aspect of his artistry, which is uh, tailoring and making these beautiful dresses. And uh, one day he meets Alma Elson, who basically throws his life uh, of extreme discipline and control into a tailspin. 
And it raises the question of who's the muse, who's the creator, and all cycles of life and death and destruction and rebirth in both romantic relationships and the creative process. So that is Phantom Thread. Yeah, what what's people's kind of uh, relationship to this movie? I, D- Dave, I know you've, you'd seen this. Sam and Connor, was this the first time you'd seen this or was this a rewatch for you guys? This was the first time I had seen Phantom Thread. This was also my first time seeing Phantom Thread. So, yeah, let's start with the newcomers. Uh, Connor and Sam, having being this the first movie you've seen, but not the, you know, we're revisiting P.T. Anderson. I'd be curious to know what you thought about the movie and also what you thought, uh, I guess, in relation to stuff we've talked about, before, like other P.T. Anderson movies we've seen, like There Will Be Blood and The Master, which we recently talked about. Oh, and we talked about Boogie Nights. Yeah. So where did, does this fall in kind of your uh, experience with P.T. Anderson's films? I think this is my favorite one. I don't know if that's like a... Oh, damn. Because <laughs> I did enjoy... I, I like The Master a lot. I, I really liked Boogie Nights... I was probably the coolest out of all of us on There Will Be Blood. I thoroughly enjoyed that movie, but I, I don't know, something about Phantom Thread, I don't know, maybe if it was like it's tight plot focus, constraint, I, I don't know, the the relationship between the characters I thought was really interesting. And it's what struck me right away is like within the first minutes, you're like, oh, this is a P.T. Anderson movie. I don't know, just something about, I mean, Wes Anderson, it's very obvious what's a Wes Anderson movie. Uh, through the way that it's shot, through the way that it's composed, but because P.T. Anderson, his filmmaking in a lot of ways is you know just a lot more subtle. That the way that the shots are set up, the lighting, I don't know. It's just like oh, this is a P.T. Anderson movie. I would be curious to kind of return to that idea of what we think are kind of the hallmarks of Anderson's narrative style, his visual style. Like yeah, what we would pinpoint as that. Um, a lot of thoughts on that. <laughs> okay, yeah, I'm sure Dave can elaborate. Uh, but before we get to Dave, Sam, I'm curious to uh, to know uh, what generally thoughts and in comparison to some other Anderson movies that we've that we've talked about. Um, real quick, I just have to acknowledge what just happened here in the chat. So, uh, <laughs> as Connor was talking, yeah, we've, we've watched four PTA films and I'm like, Royal Tenenbaums, is that not, um, Paul Thomas Anderson? And Dave's like, no, that's Wes Anderson. And I was like, fuck. Um, <laughs> it's not the other, other Anderson either. Roy Anderson. Uh, we can talk about floor. all the, you know, white boy director Andersons out there if we really want to. <laughs> Resident, Resident Evil Anderson. But like almost almost immediately after i got that wrong connor was like yeah there's no mistaking uh pt anderson or wes anderson and i was like son of a bitch okay <laughs> sam i really did i didn't even see the chat this is a thought you know something that i was thinking about today of like director style and then i'm, I'm sorry <laughs> it's okay that's just really i'm just fucking dumb that's all uh who cares um okay Back to the actual question, Christine. Um, here's here's how I feel about PT Anderson. 75% of the movies, like the, the idea behind it, the cinematography, the costumes, the actors and their performances, I'm like, yeah, this is a great fucking movie. And then that other 25% makes me go, I want to peel my skin off because I'm either so uncomfortable or I hate this. Um, 
And the only one I didn't feel that way about is There Will Be Blood. I just, I, I just liked that movie. This one, I was like, I, <sighs> you know, it's not the worst movie I've ever seen. I just, I don't know. I don't, I get it. I respect it. I respect the craft. I understand why people like it. It's just not for me. Yeah. I mean, totally fair, especially, um, I guess my take on it is just like, this movie is just about like two freaks who are in love and it's like, you either, you either buy it or you don't. (laughs) And, uh, and by, and by freaks, I just mean, like, I think they're, you know, we'll talk, we'll talk about it, uh, as, as like a love story, but I could totally, I, I, I get it, Sam, why it's, you know, not, maybe not a movie you return to. All right, Dave, returning to this movie, I don't know what number time, uh, you've seen this, uh, or how many times you've seen this before, but, uh, what was it like to rewatch this film? It's probably like sixth or seventh watch, I'd guess. Um, saw it in theaters uh, like a week after it came out, rushed to this one. Uh, then, as is the case with almost all PTA's movies, I waited about like a week and was like, well, oh, I can't have to go see it again. So twice in theaters, a number of times at home. Going back to it, I I, I love this movie. Um, I think it's I think it's objectively his best work. Subjectively, I I have other favorites. But I think on an objective level, this is some of his tightest filmmaking, uh, some of his most efficient and economical filmmaking, uh, a very, yeah, a very uh, P.T. Anderson take of uh, of a love story. It's uh, definitely got uh, a kind of like sick and a little bit twisted slant to it at times. Uh, it definitely confronts and uh, tackles subjects like toxic masculinity and uh, controlling egotistical men, specifically artists, it, we've seen we've seen him cover this ground before, but I think he covers it through an interesting lens this time, which adds a lot to the work. So let's just dive right in and start with this this initial character that uh, is. Oh, although I will say that the movie is it has an interesting framing where it does begin with Alma uh, sort of t- starting the story, and I think that's a really interesting narrative device, even though arguably. The movie begins with Reynolds Woodcock, uh, this famed dressmaker. But really, the movie begins with Alma recounting her or like telling who will later realize is this doctor beginning uh, to tell her about her relationship to Reynolds Woodcock. And really, it's her introducing him to the audience uh, as she's talking about him. And I think that uh, is a very intentional choice to, to begin kind of with her. But I really, I would like to first, well, maybe we should talk about Alma first and her as a character and how, I guess, yeah, let's actually talk to her. The movie, talk about her. The movie begins with her kind of introducing us to Reynolds Woodcock uh, but then she's later reintroduced uh, when Woodcock meets her. Uh, she's working as a waitress in a restaurant. I'm curious to know how you guys get to know her as a character. At what point in the film do you really start to get a sense of her interiority? And we can frame it around also the fact that Reynolds Woodcock, famous dressmaker, he's making all these fancy dresses for rich ladies, uh, and then he leaves leaves town and is on the countryside and meets Alma as the waitress. 
what at what point in the movie do you really start to get a sense of kind of her interworkings? It's hard to say. I, I don't know. I don't know if I have an answer to that question necessarily. I feel like she um, she's a character that that washed over me pretty pretty much immediately. I think, but only you know, but it's teased out throughout the course of the movie. It's 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 a balance. I'd say it's clear that this is her movie. This is her perspective. She is. Uh, it's established that this is her narrative recollection guiding us through the story. As uh, Anderson has said in interviews, when we then shift to meet Reynolds and get the introductory experience of what is the House of Woodcock, he is a character that has already peaked. He's already reached a ceiling. He's not growing. He's a stagnant character. That house is, as he describes, a dead house, a house that does not change. And it takes Alma's introduction into this world, uh, albeit as a bit of a wrecking ball to the, like, meticulously crafted and and formalized structure of his life and his business uh, to to shake things loose and to challenge him as a character, which I think is really great. I don't know at what point uh, I started to to really get into Alma's interiority. I think it's teased out in a lot of things. It's it's the quiet little moments of resistance to Reynolds's petulance, I guess, is, is the way I would describe it. And um, she calls him a, a boy, I think at least twice in the movie. Um, which a couple connects of times. To it's like, endearingly, but yeah. But it's an acknowledgement that he is petulant like a child. Mm-hmm. Although um, she's also called a child, interestingly enough, too, um, at one point. Uh, so there's something something there as well. Well, before, I guess before handing off the baton to everybody else, I'd say that uh, Alma is one of my one of my favorite characters ever. I think she's pretty great. I think I would put her on the same shelf that I would set characters like um, Ellen Ripley, Marge Gunderson, uh, Furiosa. This is a woman, uh, a female character that will not be denied agency. And that kind of character fucking rocks. So big fan of Alma. Yeah, I think Phantom Thread, Dave, as you brought up, kind of teases out who Alma is, what her motivations are. And I think, Christine, going back to your kind of first point about, you know, we see the, you know, the movie's introduction is Alma talking to who we later learn is the doctor. So right away telling us this is kind of what's going on here, asking us questions, keeping us on our toes. And I think that setup gives the movie kind of like a, like a thriller mystery kind of vibe of who is she talking to? We're hearing about Woodcock through her perspective. And then as we kind of learn throughout the movie, maybe that's definitely elements that are true, but it's a little more complex than what she's telling this person who we then later reveals the doctor and she has her own motivations for talking to this doctor in the way that she is. Looking back, I think we see a lot of who Alma is by this introductory sequence, but in the moment, we just kind of have to take her at face value. So I thought that was a really brilliant opening moment that, upon reflection, pays off even more in the grand scheme of the movie and learning about her. Yeah, Christine, I really liked Alma. Um, I agree with everything that folks have been saying. And I think for me, the first moment where I was like, oh, this bitch is serious is the, I guess, like the first breakfast that she has with Woodcock and Cyril. (laughs) And uh, she's just like buttering her toast. And it's so loud. And I mean, it it really is. Um, But it's just because of how quiet the other two are. And he's like, it's too much movement. It's too much. And she's like, I am eating breakfast. And then he storms off in a huff. And her and Cyril have this conversation. And she's like, ah, I think he's just being ridiculous. I'm like, you know what? Yes. Good for you. 
Yeah. So the point you bring up, Sam, basically highlights the whole dynamic of their relationship. It's like Reynolds Woodcock in the house of Woodcock. He, he lives in this environment in which he is in his workplace, he's this creative director. You know, he's got his team of women sewers who are fulfilling his visions of these like very precisely crafted outfits. And then when he's not working on dresses, he's he's existing in his quiet breakfast space where that and, and really the house he he shares is only with his sister, Cyril who I definitely want to talk about as well. Uh, but really he, it's interesting because all of the, the primary relationships in his life are with women, the women he works with, uh, his sister, and then Alma uh, who comes into his life. And as I mentioned, the, his patrons. So the people, the women who essentially finance his life <laughs> and finance his creative vision. So in many ways, his life is controlled is like surrounded by women, but he has this need for, uh, for control in many ways. And he gets pissed off, as you mentioned, Sam, when, uh, Alma is just, you know, eating her breakfast, doing her thing. And it, the sound design is so good where it's just like the crunch, crunch, crunch of a knife on a really dry piece of toast. And <laughs> the bully work is nuts. It's really loud. Yeah. So like it really heightens that a sense of like her her presence of her doing her like everyday routines is suddenly a huge disruption. But at the same time, it's like this is after they've met. And he also enters her world, you know, it's like she, he, they meet, uh, he's in this restaurant, uh, in this little bed and breakfast in the, in, you know, English countryside. And Reynolds has basically just ended one relationship. So the, uh, we're sort of to assume that he sort of cycles through women in his relation, in his love life, you know, they sort of go through this, uh, he meets them, they probably live with him and then they're, relationship basically falls apart or he and like, then it's cyril's job to get rid of them right yeah. so he's like makes his sister basically lay like deliver the news that reynolds is done you know done with you essentially and his women are sort of just like discarded like a you know fabric that's being done or you know not being used anymore but and so yeah they meet in this restaurant and almost working as a as a waitress and it's so interesting like how Reynolds is stud you can see the camera focuses on his face studying her and you're like okay he's definitely watching her so carefully how do you think the camera treats Alma though do you think that the camera like, what do you think the, like, camera's relationship to Alma is? And how does that, is that similar or different than the way you we think Reynolds watches Alma, especially when they first meet? I guess, I don't know. I, I, I don't know that the camera really communicates a, a whole lot of distinction between the two of them. Um, I think, yeah, framing maybe uh, as far as, like, shot composition, as far as that, that this whole meet cute where he is seated as a patron and she is walking through. She's actually standing uh, taller than he is. Even, and she comes over to serve him. Uh, she is in, you know, he's seated 
She uh, in the standing position. And there's a lot to that. He has this extremely demanding breakfast order. It's like the most absurd, lengthy breakfast order you could imagine. And then at the end of it, he says, uh, can can you show me the notes you've written down? He takes it and he reviews it and he says, hmm, I'm keeping this to see if she can remember it. So already he's at trying to exercise some control over this person that he seems to just not know, but already have an infatuation with or is paying attention to. But as, via the framing, it's incidental because it's a restaurant, but she is, she's, she's has the dominant footing in spite of his demands. It establishes that really fast at their first meeting, um, which is great. Also, Vicky Creeps, uh, this is the first, one, one of her first big pictures. Uh, she had done some work in Germany, and when she was contacted for this by her agent, she didn't know that it was a P.T. Anderson film when she agreed to do it and sent in an audition. Uh, and she also uh, did not meet Daniel Day-Lewis until they began shooting. And when she walks into the room and she, like, trips uh, on the table, preparing food for someone else and looks in his direction and blushes, that was not part of the script, which is why, like, I was trying to wrap my head around it. It's like, how does she blush like that, like, on cue? But it yes. was because it's so apparent. She's like, she gets really flush. I but was apparently that was that a genuine too. moment. But not only in terms of her character, but be- between her walking on set and discovering, not discovering Aww. for the first time, but the first time she's interacting with Daniel Day-Lewis, who is deeply in character. So there's there's a lot going on in that scene, not only in terms of like the framing and, the, you know, the uh, the symbolism of positioning and the power dynamics involved, but also in terms of these two actors taking on these roles. And the role of food. Mm, uh-huh. Well, because, uh, you know, it's like what? A Welsh rarebit? bangers, math, you know, like all the many classic British breakfast items from that time. And it's just, I, I don't quite know what to make. I, you know, we can talk about this now, talk about it later, but Reynolds' relationship with food, I think is a really interesting kind of thematic tissue throughout uh, pretty much scene after scene after scene. And she leaves a note saying, for the hungry boy. Which is right before he asks her yeah. to dinner, yeah. So that's, so I think right, even so right away, there's a pairing with Alma and food being the waitress at the end with the omelet forging for the month. So there's a lot eat right away. I mean, PT PTA doesn't mess around when it comes with pretty much any aspect of, of his movies. And so right away, interesting Dave, I love how you brought up the different levels that they're at um, higher stance, lower stance food is introduced. Um, we see there's a chemistry right away and their relationship does move very fast. Uh, she just agrees to go on a date with him. And then I love the scenes, too, of him driving her in the car. I don't know. It just feels so like we're going fast through the All water. the car shots are amazing. Yeah. yeah. So uh, there's so many things. Uh, but right in your mention of the car shots, I love those as well because they feel like, I don't know, like 1960s, like French car driving like french movies when like they're driving car fast in a small car very new wave yeah 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 and uh but yet all of the shots in the interior of the home of the women wearing the dresses doing the fashion shows the camera is so still and so it, it like everything is just framed just so and then the only other times besides the driving shots that the camera's like getting shaky is that scene when he goes into the christmas uh new year's eve party to go find alma and uh well, we can talk about that scene later but really really love that scene but it is interesting uh you know thinking about camera movement 
and thinking about moments of sort of abandon within the characters' lives and then moments of very, very sort of studied precision control uh, that's kind of reflected in the much stiller shots of like interior sets, especially in that in, in the house of Woodcock. So you've got and and also all all the things about like interior versus the countryside what goes on in their country home uh all the food that goes on there and then what goes on in the very controlled environment of the um of the city house uh but also connecting to alma food sir like service so like when she, yeah, when we're introduced to her, she is in the service industry. She's serving him. And a lot of, like in a lot of ways, Reynolds' relationships to women are kind of in a sort of a work or service dynamic, except for his sister. But he has a bunch of the women who do his sewing for the designs. And then we've got Alma who's serving him his breakfast. So we've got already an establishing sort of power dynamic that's certainly reflective of, you know, the 1950s when this is set, power that certainly men like Reynolds Woodcock were were wielding. I don't know, uh, Sam was asking what the age gap between the two is. I'm sure it's quite significant. I mean... Yeah, it's never uh, never expressed. Yeah. I imagine he's in his probably late 50s, and then she's got to be in her, like, mid-20s. I'm guessing like it's probably 30-ish years, maybe. It feels about right. Yeah. Um, I'm only asking because, like, you know, I, I feel like that explains, like, so much of their dynamic, too, of just how much Alma is ready to fight back. But I, I can't help but think about it because have you all seen, I guess, the BuzzFeed article that's going around saying that the age gap between Joel and Ellie in The Last of Us is the exact same as the age gap? No, I, I'm I'm mistaken. Um, Pedro Pascal and uh, Bella Ramsey is the same as... As Leonardo DiCaprio and his new girlfriend. Um, and it's like disgusting. And obviously, like age gaps, particularly ones that are like decades, are always suspicious. But I wonder when, like, and you know, PTA doesn't have like the I don't even know what I'm saying here, like the 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 grounds on this one or the 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 onus on this, but like he's got a bigger problem with that in his uh movie after that. So don't even worry about oh, it. Oh, okay, great, cool. <laughs> Never mind. Fuck it then. <laughs> I just I see it and it's weird. Well, I mean, yeah, I think age does, you know, I think clearly he wants is attracted, wants to go after these young women. But I think what what's interesting is like is he even like his motivation for being in these relationships? You know, he says he's a confirmed bachelor that he to love is to like invite disaster. I think there's some some line like that uh, when him and Alma are kind of their scenes first talking. And so I it was just curious of like why he wants to be in these relationships. Is it just for the sense of control? Is it tied into you know he does want to have physical relationships with people? He definitely likes his routine, so it would seem like inviting other people into his routine would be is like, you know, antithetical to like his lifestyle. And so I think is he? I mean, clearly probably looking for a mother replacement. Um, yeah, there you go. So that's probably the main. So I just thought that that was a really um, a surprisingly complex background for Reynolds Woodcock. Uh, we've talked a lot about Alma, but I, I think he 
Right, and it, we're introduced. You know, Alma says he's con- the most controlling person I've ever met right at the very beginning of the movie, but there was a lot of layer nuance to Reynolds Woodcock. Yeah, he's a huge asshole, but we see a lot of, learn a lot about him throughout the two hours that the film runs. And I was kind of surprised at where the story takes its turns and his vulnerabilities and his insecurities and his, the, his childlike nature of this prolific fashion icon. Yeah, you bring up a lot of good points, especially about what makes Alma different. And do we think that his meeting of her follows the same patterns that presumably he had with the other women that he had been with before? And then at what point do we think things change? And how does their relationship change? And how does his feelings towards her change? How much... uh... How far ahead do we want to get? Because I think if you track this throughout the course of the movie, his motivations become a little more clear. Because what I mean, I mean by that, I guess, if if we're going to, yeah, we're going to talk about it all anyway. I think it's, yeah, it's a very familiar trajectory for him. He has swept up a young woman uh, into his orbit and makes his demands of this person in a very controlling way, as he does with literally everyone and everything in his life. Because he is, in a sense, a control freak, uh, an, an artist and a gene and a quote unquote genius. And those people do have uh, oftentimes, especially uh, when they're men, uh, the the privilege of being assumed that what they're doing is necessary to their work and that, that they're fixed in their ways. And that's what they want. Um, but what all con- what Reynolds Woodcock, like almost all control freaks actually want is someone else to take control. And it takes Alma uh, incapacitating him <laughs> via poisoning and then caring for him to open his eyes to uh, the power that she has in that regard. But I think at that at that time, it's more that she is a mother surrogate. She's someone that can can care for him and tend to him in times when he's sick so that he can get back to full steam and regain control. It's not until the end, because after that, uh, after this moment where he feels he's truly in love with her after being poisoned for the first time, uh, that he proposes marriage. And then immediately on the honeymoon, we see that that is not working out because it's it's not about it's not necess- it's not exclusively about the mothering thing. It's about his desire as someone who needs to feel in control all the time to be in a position where he doesn't have control and someone else can control him. And that becomes deeply apparent at the end in a very sadomasochistic yet consensual way. And so I think that's really what it is. So, yeah, we've jumped we've jumped towards the pivotal half, like basically exactly halfway through this movie's runtime is when he basically is like, this isn't working. My life is a mess. And then she she poisons him or no, I guess she poisons him first before they get engaged. And then she poisons, <laughs> poisons him again. Mm-hmm. Um, I This is such a fascinating plot point because I, you know, I was with the movie in the beginning. And then as we are getting toward this halfway point, it was kind of losing me a little. I was like, OK, wh- but OK, so where are we going? We have these two people. Same, honestly, the first time. Yeah. And I, I it's PTA. So I'm going to guess that's by choice. Like that was a decision to like, all right, let's lull people into this comfort, this routine. Uh, and then kind of like Munchausen's by proxy, just wants Alma slash revenge uh, to make him sick. Uh, Cause she does fill the grinds up a whole mushroom, fills the container with like four portions, but only puts two in the tea. So I thought that was an interesting detail too, of like, she had a lethal dosage. I'm, this is just me watching assuming that a lethal dosage that then she halved 
just to make him sick. And I watched this with Alyssa and she was like, the movie didn't really, you know, it was losing me until the Munchausen by proxy started happening. Then it gripped me. Then I couldn't stop watching. So she wanted to make sure that I threw that in there too, that that's when the movie grabbed her attention and didn't let go. The big pivot. So we've been talking about the idea of uh, Woodcock as the, you know, he's the creative director of this design house. What do we think is, because I think not only does this movie talk about relationships and love, but it has a lot to do with uh, with creation and creativity and that process of like of of finding, yeah, of finding something to like work on uh, and create and produce. What do you think is Alma's creation, or what what is like what is her sort of like material? What's interesting to me is how much, like, how quickly she catches the fervor of, like, how important these dresses are, right? Because she, um, he makes the dress for that one lady. Forgive me. I can't remember her name. It's but a she's French like, uh, duchess, I think. I Yeah, I think you're right. And then she passes out at dinner. Oh, not... Oh, the other lady. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, I know who you're talking about. Yeah, it's not Mrs. Vaughn. It's some. It's the other. Yeah, the other lady. And then she's Barbara like Barbara Rose. There it is. Yeah, she's like, that's your dress. She doesn't deserve to wear it. It's like holy shit, lady. It is a dress, but like the the cult of it catches so fast. And that scene's awesome. Yeah, where she, and it's Reynolds. It, this is um. Yeah, he's made a dress for Barbara Rose. She's. Not only drunk at her wedding, which is what he made the dress for, but like all the other women, she he's she's constrained. Like she's being kind of smothered by this dress. That's the thing about his designs. Part of it is that they are so elegant, but they're completely restrictive, which says a lot about Reynolds as a character, as a metaphor also. But yeah, she passes out and then it's uh, Reynolds sitting there and like disgust. And it's Alma who is like, look, this isn't right. Uh, and he's like, look, don't pout. And he's like, no, I'm not pouting. Your dresses deserve better. And that's when she motivates him to like have them both go and storm her room and take the dress back, which she does uh, with a really great moment. Her son, Cal, is, is around in the mix. Barbara's son. And uh, it's just uh, it's it's Reynolds waiting at the door as Alma goes to fetch this dress. And Cal just comes out to see what's going on. Is Mr. Woodcock? And <laughs> Reynolds is stern. Cal. It's a great moment. Yeah, so it's like almost being brought into the trade. Essentially, we she's part she's part of the team now. She's doing a ton of sewing. She's learning the craft. She's um, sort of support. Yeah, helping the creation of these dresses. She clearly has like a keen eye. But I feel like in many ways, her craft is not the dresses. Her craft is like Woodcock. Um, Yeah, yeah. (laughs) And there's a, I mean, I'd love to just talk about the title, The Phantom Thread. Uh, At one point, Woodcock talks to her about how he leaves little messages in his own coats. She finds a message in one of the final wedding dresses that's made. And this idea of secrets and leaving little traces of things that only the creator knows about. Like, what do you think, I guess, what do you think the phantom thread has to do with like this exploration of like relationship and of love and uh, kind of like the dynamic between these two characters? There's probably a lot of directions you can take it. But for me, when I think of the phrase phantom thread, I can't help but think about the fever dream that he has when he sees his mother in her wedding dress. 
Um, this like old school with like the hat, lots of lace, very restrictive also, uh, very restrictive dress. One of the few actual white wedding dresses that we see in the movie, several people get married, but I think we only see two white wedding dresses in the whole film. Um, one of them being the phantom apparition. And, you know, I think that's for him, this crystallizing moment of I'm sick. I see my mother. Alma's here, kind of mother surrogate vibes happening and so i think the phantom thread between mother son intergeneration codependency uh, for me that's kind of where i saw a uh, more abstract and we do see a fever phantom so we do see some ghostly figure so i think for me that's kind of the the connection of like mother son phantom feelings phantom connections that even though and there's several lines about uh, death and the dead watching over people. And Reynolds has several lines about death. And so I think that's kind of where I see the connection. Yeah. And the phantom thread also being this sort of, I am at, well, by the end, as it establishes, as everything goes on, the phantom thread being this unspoken to others understanding between the two of them that every once in a while, she's going to have to poison you for this relationship to work. Uh, and that being a sewn in secret between the two of them and it being um, something that's uh, pretty sick and pretty kinky, but is also, uh, you know, uh, the the foundation for the way that she navigates a relationship with a, a very controlling man is every once in a while having to put him in his place and uh, and take the reins. And I think that is also kind of the phantom thread there, uh, their dynamic, because initially it is her secret and then he becomes aware of it. Yeah, for sure. I think by the end, both of these characters have gone through a lot and right that notion of of a secret that these people in a relationship have that for them works, you know, and they think it's hot. And by the end, you're like, oh, yeah, okay, pretty fucking sexy. But (laughs) I mean, maybe, you know, take it or leave it. But um, this notion of, I, I feel like the significant of secrets and of, you know, consensual secrets, I think is like a really interesting through line there. Also, I'm kind of interested in kind of her relationship to Cyril and how we think that relationship changes. And because I, I think at the beginning through most of the movie, I think for the what uh, Reynolds really goes to Cyril when things get really out of control for him. He, I think, and Cyril also has sort of these devices and mechanics of control that she puts on uh, Woodcock as well. And she basically mm-hmm. is like, shut the fuck up, <laughs> which, you know, some of he needs, but yeah. What do you, what do you guys think about Cyril as, as a character, as an important woman in Woodcock's life, but also kind of, what goes on between them and then what goes on between Cyril and uh, Alma. There's a lot to be said about how this movie parallels Alfred Hitchcock's Rebecca, a movie about um, a man who is trying to replace his, his former partner by constructing her likeness in the form of another person. And he does have this, um, this, uh, this uh, older woman helper who, who kind of like facilitates all of that. It's, it's way more sinister in Rebecca in 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 the form of Cyril, I think we kind of invert that in a way. I think Cyril is very much a necessary fixture in the life of Reynolds Woodcock and the house of Woodcock. But I think that she does feel, you know, in a way that she is uh, expected to do things like expel these no longer wanted women of Reynolds's life, uh, the way that she is the one that chiefly interacts with uh, the team of women who do the sewing, um, because 
Woodcock is more of the designer. Reynolds is more of the designer side of it. And I think she's very set in her place and feels probably restrained in a way that she tolerates, uh, as does everyone in Reynolds' orbit. It's not until Alma shows up that she starts pushing back in some interesting ways. Uh, It's not until she recognizes that Alma is not a a transient figure who will come and go, as have all the others, because she has not challenged Reynolds. It's a recognition that this is someone who's stirring shit up. This is maybe an opportunity for me to air my perfectly valid criticisms and gripes with the conditions I've been living under, under my brother and our our collaborative partnership. Uh, especially that one scene at, at the one breakfast where she just flat out tells him, like, she, he's giving her shit as he always does. And as you can tell, he always has. But she finally pushes back and says, like, oh, you don't want to challenge me if you she says it in the calmest way and not looking at him just like, oh, you don't want to challenge me because if it comes to blows, I'm going to go right through, you know, the you that ends up on the floor. And you can tell that's the first time she's said that to him ever because of her because of Alma's influence and impact on that orbit. She's like, I will end you. And then that ends the conversation. (laughs) That seems great. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, the supportive, is she the older or younger sister? Older or younger than him? Not established. I think she might be maybe a little bit older. It's hard to say. So I think that there's an interesting, so on top of phantom mother-son relationship, brother-sister, I think is really interesting too. Um, You know, he definitely is the artistic side and she is the business side. There's a lot of great interactions, I think, of her like, keeping the business in tow, which also is like managing the women in his life that also, you know, he has to have breakfast regularly. He has to do this regularly. He has to keep his routine. So he has a productive day. If he has a bad breakfast and the whole day is shot, she says something to that effect. And so I think it it is really interesting, you know, Dave, all the agreeing with all the points you mentioned of her, um, I think being pretty happy, at least there's security in the house of Woodcock. Um, And so with this, introduction of Alma, there's a lot of uncertainty, but I think in this uncertainty, she does see opportunities to kind of push back a little against Reynolds, where maybe before it was only professionally, you know, business-wise, dollars and cents, she could push back. But I think personally, there's a little more room now that his vulnerabilities are, you know, another flank, another, uh, you know, front has opened of somebody who's pushing on him. Especially the conversation just before things wind down when uh, Reynolds comes in after they're engaged and it's not or they're married and it's not working out. He comes in to like just piss and moan as he always does about how like someone's come into this house and they're challenging me and I hate that blah, blah, blah. And her response at that point, because she has been granted uh, this sort of like newfound position of being able to push back, says to him, well, I don't want to hear it because it makes my ears hurt. Because it's the position he's put her in for so long that she won't tolerate anymore. He's the grating toast to Cyril's ears. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, I can't hear this anymore. And this, you know, many of PTA's movies are very serious. But I think he also has a really great sense of, of humor and comedy in moments. And Phantom Thread, Dave, we were talking about this earlier, uh, a lot of very funny moments. And in our conversations now, realizing that a lot of them come through Cyril as somebody who knows Reynolds better than anybody else on the planet. Uh, and I think there's a lot of small comedic moments that are that you know are dotted throughout this relatively serious drama. So we've talked about Cyril and uh, her relationship with Alma and with Reynolds. 
I think also uh, another thing I wanted to add is I feel like the movie does a good job of sort of departing from the like women fighting over a man storyline because at first it's like, ooh, does, is Cyril feeling is Cyril feeling like Alma is putting a rift between Cyril and Re- uh, like Reynolds relationship? And you really, as the movie progresses, just understand, as we've mentioned, Cyril just wants Reynolds to shut the fuck up. And like, if like whatever is going to like basically have things work out is what Cyril wants. It's not that she's like jealous of Alma or anything like that, because ultimately by the end, we really see uh, that Cyril, Cyril recognizes not only Alma's relationship to, to Reynolds, but I also think that um, Cyril recognizes Alma's contributions to more of the practical ongoings of the of the design space uh you know almost like really hands-on almost the one who stays up all night completing the final wedding dress and so i think cyril recognizes what an asset to alma is in or in the sort of sort of general functioning of of the house both in um sort of more of a, a interpersonal way and as like as a contributor to kind of to general efforts. I think Cyril also loves that yeah Alma is like a is is a is a messy disruptor. Uh Anderson uh PT Anderson to clarify uh has gotten got a lot of guff over his career and rightly so honestly about uh his is putting toxic male figures at the forefront of his movies and i think he does that often uh i think in ways that are relatively nuanced and insightful but at the same time still kind of those characters but this movie through the united front of cyril and uh alma it's kind of a movie about tearing one of those figures down and exposing them for their their petulance and their their obnoxiousness which i think is a really cool turn for him as a director especially this late in the game of a career having established that kind of pattern yeah yeah definitely and let's talk a little bit about some or like a couple of the like important sort of turning points in their relationship in Alma and Reynolds relationship, because as we mentioned before, it feels like for, you know, at least the first third to half of the movie, we're seeing the development of this relationship that feels possibly very much like his cycle with previous women he's, uh, he's dated or at least been with. But then we see that things are starting to fall apart a little and uh, Alma decides that she's uh, going to poison him. She sickens, she makes him sick. He's, he faints in front of all the women as he's working on this really important dress. Alma nurses him back to health. Uh, she stays up all night uh, making the dress and then Reynolds proposes to her, let's get married. So already he's crossing into this new threshold, this uh, new space that he's never been with. Especially the the proposal. Uh, it's a very, very long zoom shot from across mm. a wide angle room uh, where the pristine wedding dress that she has worked on all night with everyone else that he designed is there on the left hand side. And they're sort of a little bit further to the right where he walks in, he finds Alma sitting there, you know, um, asleep on the on the sofa and they he proposes marriage and this slow zoom happens that tracks us in on this shot to the point that the dress is pushed out. It's it's no longer about this sense of artistic control governing his life. He, He feels that he has found through this 
newfound vulnerability and her motherliness that it can be about just the two of them for a moment. And it's like Alma over these stages keeps pushing the boundaries. And we'll talk a little bit more about the idea of game in a second, but she keeps pushing these boundaries uh, to kind of see how, how Reynolds will react. The first real big blow up happens when uh, Alma senses that she's always surrounded by other people and that she really never gets alone time with Reynolds to really understand what their relationship is about. So she decides to throw him a dinner and and cook him like cook him uh, a meal where just the two of them, she asks everyone else to leave. She gets all dressed up. And, you know, Dave, you keep talking about petulance. Yeah. Reynolds comes in. He's like, where is everybody? I'm focused on my work. We have the dress to do. So he's really pissed that like things are not as he would have expected when he arrives back at his house. And almost like, well, I made you a dinner. You're going to sit and eat it. And of course he like a, like a child is like shuffling about. He's like, I got to go take a bath and I got to go make a drink and I got to go get changed. And finally he sits down and he notices that she's made him uh, asparagus, not the way he likes it. And she knows that he knows that it's not the way that he likes it because he likes his asparagus with oil, whatever. And so in that moment, you start to see Alma pushing his buttons and, and to see like, like how he might react if she intentionally creates a situation that's not to his liking or that, that in somehow kind of throws him off uh, as something so basic as like the wrong asparagus preparation. And so in her service, she's, it's a service of like fucking with stuff. And then it begins with the asparagus and then it moves on to just two little thimblefuls of mushrooms that poison him, give him you know, a couple days of sickness. He can't work. He can't work. He regains his health. He proposes to Alma. They have sort of like two days of marital bliss. And then suddenly things get, you know, messy again. Uh, and he's stressed out about work. And then he finally blows up to Cyril with Alma overhearing him that Alma's like, that this is not working. The marriage is falling apart. Uh, it's, it's a complete mess. At what, at one point, Alma also wants to like go have a party or wants to go to the New Year's Eve party and kind of live her life. What do you guys think about that New Year's Eve scene? It's one of my favorite scenes, but I'm curious to to know like what stands out to you about when Alma goes to the party when Reynolds wants to stay home and and uh, avoid crowds essentially. There's I just want to touch on one small moment as she leaves. Please, yeah, go um, for it. So he's like, I want to go to this party. I want to do this thing. And he's like, I have to work. Blah, blah, blah. She puts on the dress, walks out. He's like seated weird, like leg stretch. Like you just see his, his, uh, I guess, right leg. It's like just out of frame. Out. Yeah. Yeah. Just out of frame. Like the cam, it's the cameraman, camera person's back is to the doorway of the house. Camera facing, you know, the hallway. She's walking out. And then he just let Dan Day-Lewis just like pops out, pops out again. <laughs> I don't know. It's like. Another moment of just like, did she really do that? No. Oh, she really did go out. And then he like kind of goes out, looks at the key, uh, the what's the 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 little door, the little window in a door. What's that called? People. Uh, the people. Yeah. <laughs> so I couldn't think of that. Which he also does spying on her uh, in the fashion show. Now, just a nice little that fucking do the people. <laughs> it's uh, so it's such a and yeah, such a detail. 
and a so, filmmaker analog. It's like that's the viewfinder. Yeah. <laughs> and so I think just I thought that was a nice touch, like leading up to him searching for her. Like we just get him. It's nice that we get a moment with Reynolds of like, oh, she did leave. Is she coming back? Is she going through the no coming walking back up the street to the house? No, she's gone. And he wants to find her in this really crazy party that's like cowboys and Indians with like somebody riding this like paper mache puppet elephant. Um, <laughs> there's like a covered wagon with a Confederate flag on it. It's just total chaos. And it looks like it was interesting. Is like she looks like she's having a lot of fun. And then when it's like, oh, happy new year, all these balloons are falling. There's just like a brouhaha breaks out. Uh, people just jostling, having you know, roughhousing a little. And it's it, it's a really chaotic scene that I kind of had a hard time piecing together exactly what was happening. So I'd be curious to hear other folks' kind of thoughts too on that. But it was a really interesting scene. I just love the intro, the lead up to it of Reynolds. I, I just had to shout that out. One of the big features of this party, and uh, shout out to Adam Naiman, film critic who uh, wrote the book uh, Masterworks about P.T. Anderson's films. Um, points out uh, pretty aptly that there is a giant, big paper mache construction of a rocket ship in the middle of this dance floor, uh, this this big New Year's Eve party, and that being set in the 1950s. We we've not explored space yet. It's a vision of the future. That in tandem with Alma leaving his side to go experience things with other people, a reflection of the future and simultaneously a reflection of the the future of their dynamic and the influence of other people and the, the the influence of time sort of this notion that like he he cannot stay in this arrested state of manufactured perfection forever someone needs to challenge it and she's the one that does it and does so by pulling him into that situation outside of his comfort zone into a social situation he would never find himself in on his own so it's like you see Alma by going to this party, as you said, Dave, pulling Reynolds out of his comfort zone because he's like, I need to know what she's up to, what's going on. Uh, but I think in a key part, as Connor, you've mentioned, she also gets jostled and by the end is on the wall and almost is watching this from a distance or watching the party from a distance also. So it's like, there's something missing. It's not as fulfilling, at least how I read it. It was like going to this party was not as fulfilling as she thought it would be. And in a way, it positions both her and Reynolds outside of the crowd. It's like at some point they have their own thing that they really like. And it's not always going to be exactly the light, like what this crowd, uh, you know, whatever is going on or represented by this crowd, they are kind of positioned, both of them outside of it um, in, in some, in different ways, but they do ha share some sort of commonality. And because they both want the same thing. They both want to be fixtures, central fixtures of the house of Woodcock doing this. And they also so desperately want each other, but they haven't figured out how to bridge that gap yet, which is leading us right into what happens after. <laughs> Well, so uh, like I also want to point out, um, relating back to kind of thinking about the notion of game and the game that unfolds between them is when they're at a party. You know, there's also Alma's like at a fancy party and she's chatting up the doctor. And then one of Reynolds's patrons is like, Ooh, are you jealous? And they start playing backgammon. And Alma's not playing or like following the rules or something. And Woodcock gets really angry at her because she's like not keeping score correctly. 
And uh, she's like, I don't want to play this stupid game anyways. And then Reynolds says, you think it's a stupid game, but if you were victorious, you'd see it in a different light. So it's like that starts to uh, set in motion this notion of game and uh, who's in the position of like dominance and who's winning. And, And so I thought that was such a great little moment to suggest like what is going to unfold. And then, yeah, I mean, we've got this long eating scene at the end. It all comes back to meals uh, where we've got Reynolds. They're at their country cottage where all the crazy shit goes. (laughs) He's working on a dress design and almost in the kitchen within eye view of him preparing their meal and she's cutting the poison. She pulls the book off the shelf, cutting the mushrooms, serving it up, frying it up so nicely. And frying it up with butter, which with we know butter, he which he hates. Lots of butter. And then <laughs> she serves it up. And then he's like, he, by this point, he's like, something's up. I know it. And he just cuts it and starts to slowly eat it, watching her react to him to see, is she going to stop me? Is she going to stop me? Because this is fucking poisoned. Yeah, what do you guys, What like, how do you think this scene um, unfolds? This, this scene gives me the Anderson smile that I, that I get with some of his films, especially the ends of some of his films, especially There Will Be Blood. It's a moment where one character so severely gets the upper hand and expresses it to the other character. The difference being that, of course, in There Will Be Blood, it results in, you know, someone being bludgeoned to death with a, a bowling pin. In this one, though, Christine, as you've said, yeah, he's he's observing her do this. And he's aware of what's happening. It's like you can see him connect the pieces in his mind as he's watching. Like, that's why I was sick. That's what happened. She's doing it again. And she serves him the omelet. She sarcastically pours the water. like. Holds up her like she pours herself a water. She pours his water and like extends her arm like past shoulder length to like pour this long pour, just ex- accentuating the sarcasm and like pointedness of it. And even then, he's still like he's observing her. He decides he's going to cut it up. He looks at her. It's just like okay, I'm doing this. Scoops some of it up in his fork, stares at her again, shovels some of it into his mouth, and does the long chew, and then points the fork back at her before swallowing as he's chewing it. And it's then that she says, expressing his suspicion and what she's been doing all along, look, you're going to wish you were dying. You're, you're going to think you're dying, but and you may wish you were dying, but you're not going to die. I have this figured out. I want you vulnerable on your back and helped only by me. And then and only then does he swallow it. It's him understanding that this fucked up very kinky and it is very kinky the scene is almost erotic that he decides okay this is what this is i'm gonna swallow it i'm part of this and then the first thing he says after swallowing it is now kiss me my girl before i'm sick and then he's like we better call the doctor and it's like if this was a fucking porno Obviously, the doctor would arrive. Okay, okay, I won't go on this. Whatever. <laughs> the point is, is like, I have this theory, and I just was, it just came to me that this movie exists in the Boogie Nights universe, and it's just like the 1950s, like, 
very like it has no sex but it has all the sex and it's just like <laughs> one of like the porn flicks that Derek Diggler like will star in later on in his career it's ripe with sexual sadomasochism that scene which is oh. really interesting and then now there could be a whole conversation basically every PT Anderson movie is about sex and exists in the Boogie Nights universe. <laughs> Certainly there will be blood. Do you know what inspired this movie, <laughs> Christine? Phantom Thread? Yeah. No. Supposedly it was uh, an instance where uh, P.T. himself was very sick in his home. Uh, Maya Rudolph, his partner, they're not married, but they have several children together and have been together a long time, uh, was caring for him. And she, he, in his words, saw her caring for him with a kind of affection that she hasn't seen in her in years. Okay, yeah, it's like, <laughs> part of, yeah, I mean, I don't know what they get up to, it's probably some phantom thread shit, but uh, good for them. Um, anyhow, yeah. But that's the, the thing, it is, it's it's extremely, it's a toxic situation, she's poisoning him. It's a very <laughs> fucked up situation. <laughs> but it's totally consensual, and they both realize that this is how we work. Uh, yeah, no, it's, they. that's the thing, is they've figured out something that works for them and they've they've made it work because the final scenes are these sort of idyllic visions now do you think they have okay idyllic visions of like a baby in the bassinet and her look looking like she's kind of taking the lead in this house of woodcock also house of woodcock come on like <laughs> oh the name origin also uh daniel day lewis came up with the character's name himself and they stuck with it because it made pt anderson laugh so hard that he cried that's the thing it's like there's like as you were pointing out connor there are some fundamentally hilarious aspects of this film that it's so serious, but at the same time, it's so not serious. And that's why I think, like, it's definitely just, like, a Boogie Nights movie. But... Well, and the, like, it's a fucking poison mushroom omelet. Like, that's funny. Like, inherently, <laughs> like, that's funny. Yeah. And so do we think... So there's... I can't remember the exact sort of narrative lines, but it's something to the effect, it's almost voice kind of closing the story, where she's like, I now have visions of the future or like I, I see the future and what this essential, essentially this game, like will the groundwork it'll lay for the future we have together. Do you think that those were things that actually happen or this, or is that her projecting into the future of like the life she sees for them? Like, do you really think they, uh, you know, have the baby and then she takes over the house of Woodcock and everything? Or was that like her own sort of fantasy, her personal fantasy? Well, we see it happen. She She's relaying all, she's narrating all that to the doctor as we come to understand then. Because she's she's called the doctor because she's maybe a little bit too generously poisoned Reynolds. <laughs> um, but... She's like, She's you don't, you don't trust me. And he's like, <laughs> like, I mean, mm. I don't know. <laughs> but, and it's, it's, it's a monologue that's sort of not just about like their future as far as like, we're going to have children, we're going to do this. It's bigger than that. It's like, we, I know that if things don't work out, then he'll be waiting for me in the next life. It is a sort of like bigger ownership, mutual ownership of one another as people understood finally through this cathartic and twisted kinky thing 
Um, so I, I, I imagine it's like a hopeful projection of what she imagines the future will be if they can maintain that in a healthy and non-fatal way. But I, I don't know. It's hard to say. Good luck to them. Good luck to, yeah. They've you know. got some journey ahead of them. I guess good for them. It works. Um, I, I don't know. Christine, an interesting pick for love month. <laughs> well, you know, it's like, this is one take on one take on love. It is interesting. Uh, Was that the working title? One take on love. Yeah, just kidding. I don't think this movie, only other possible title for this movie is House of Woodcock. It was either that or Phantom Thread. <laughs> Made the right choice. Yeah, like I just want an Oscar-nominated film, House of Woodcock. I feel like in another parallel universe. Um, okay, I have. Oh, yeah. So we've talked. We have deconstructed this movie. I think we've done a really nice job of of talking about characters, relationship dynamics, love. Is it to- toxic or not? Um, is the omelet toxic or not? Omelette is definitely yes. toxic. But what I want to know is the most important question, uh, the answer to the most important question, which is what was everyone's favorite outfit? Because this movie might be about relationships, but it's more about fashion and outfits. So does everyone has a, have a favorite piece of clothing or outfit that they liked? I think it's one of the first dresses that we see Woodcock make for Alma. It has that like lace bodice and she looks phenomenal in it. Oh my gosh. I was like, give me that dress. Yeah, that, that one's beautiful. I hope I'm not stepping on your toes, Christine, because I saw it here in your notes. But i um big fan of all the dresses. Big fan of all the costuming. Costuming's fantastic. Apparently Daniel Day-Lewis had a uh, kind of full sway over what he would wear. Like, he chose the outfits depending on the scene, which is Damn, interesting. DTL. But the, the big winner are these magenta socks. These socks are awesome. <laughs> yeah, they they are definitely the star of the show, uh, especially when he, when he gets out of the car, which is so wonderful, too, because the treatment, you know, it's like I was asking, like, how does the camera kind of treat Alma? Because we're thinking about, like, with, like, you know, in, in fashion, the objectification of, like, women and, um, and like, how are women framed, especially in, like, fashion shoots and in films where it's, like, ooh, fashionable woman. And a lot of times there's that classic shot of the, of the lady leaving the car and her feet are the first to touch the ground. But in this, you see Woodcock feet leaving the car and those magenta socks just pop right in the shot. And so it's like a wonderful kind of take on that classic getting out of the car scene, but it's with Reynolds and those fucking delicious socks. How about you, Connor? I got to give a special shout out to his nighty in the dinner fight scene, his, his pajamas with like the, I let the lilac lavendery color, silk looking pajamas with the vest and a robe over it. I think is is what I clocked that in as. I thought that was pretty stylish. It looked very comfy. So we all know the dresses were amazing, but special shout out to his PJs. And the fact that, yeah, Daniel had, you know, a lot of control over his, uh, his wardrobe. That's interesting. My favorite outfit is Alma's Christmas outfit when they're invited to the big, really fancy dinner at the Bad Gammon. Oh, that like satin shawl thing that's like wrapped around her 
is, is gorgeous. And it's also interesting. We talked like you guys brought up a really great point that I hadn't thought about, about the constricting designs, uh, for women that he, he, that he, uh, outfits, but in many ways, Alma's outfits have some aspects of constricting elements, but look, feel like, like a little bit looser. Um, and so it looks like he, his tailoring for her is different than he might approach uh, some of the his other clients um, that that get outfitted. But that's that's Phantom Thread, folks. Watch it, don't watch it. Who knows? It's not for everyone. I totally get it. I just think for me, this is a perfect blend of the like. I love costume dramas, and I love like beautiful outfits. Uh, and just the fact that it's kind of like a, a wonderfully fucked up movie with beautiful outfits is like just mm, perfect combo. Um, so that was Phantom Thread. Send us an email. Tell us what you think is, what does this movie have to say about love? Who knows? We will uh, check us out on all the socials, butter with that on Instagram, Twitter, send us an email, as I said, and, uh, check out our other fellow movie, John podcasts. Uh, that are in the Movie John Network. We're so excited for what's in store for our 200th episode. Big week. Uh, drum roll, drum roll, drum roll. Please tune in next week for two, our big 200 because we're feeling good, feeling fancy. Um, all right, have a good whatever. Thanks for listening. Don't eat the mushrooms. A Welsh rabbit, scrambled eggs, bacon, sausage. Lentils, <laughs> toast, jam. <laughs> this has been a movie, John podcast.